Welcome to Pete's Cast, a podcast brought to you by Children's of Alabama. I'm pediatrician Dr. Corey Cross. Today we are joined by Dr. Marcos Pozo, who's the surgical director of the Pediatric Liver Transplant Program at Children's of Alabama. He will be discussing biliary atresia and updates from a transplant perspective. Dr. Pozo, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start big picture. Give me a broad view of what biliary atresia is and how common it is. So it's basically what I call, I like to call the zebra in pediatric, specifically in pediatric surgery and even in pediatric liver transplant. A zebra is what we call in medicine that rare disease that you more often than not, you think that it won't be the diagnosis. However, it's such a big zebra in pediatrics, in my mind, because the consequences of not diagnosing it or diagnosing it late are very, very much cumbersome and important. They have many effects on these patients. And the reason why I call it one of the biggest zebras in pediatrics is because even though if you do think about it and you do diagnose it, the consequences of this disease are lifelong. So it's a disease that even if you intervene early on, the parents are still going to be dealing with like lifelong care for their baby, even as they move into adulthood. And statistics do show that at least 90% of these patients will end up receiving a liver transplant for biliary atresia before they're 18 years old. All that to say, to basically highlight the relevance of the problem, but biliary atresia, it boils down to a genetic defect with some contribution from the environment. In fact, the etiology of it is totally unknown still to this day. And where the liver is is born without a biliary system, meaning there's no gallbladder, there's no bile duct inside the liver, and thus these babies already have cirrhosis of the liver by the time that they reach two to three months, unless they're diagnosed early. Got it. So early diagnosis is really key. It is extremely important because what we know from the disease is that whatever affects the liver in these babies happens in utero. It's already when they're already a fetus in their mom's belly, something is already affecting their liver. So by the time that they're born, we already have a fight against time because you have to diagnose them ideally within the first days of life. And what confounds the problem is the fact that it'll manifest itself with being jaundice. And as every parent knows, the being jaundice in the early days as a newborn is very much a common occurrence. And in reality, the differential diagnosis for this is very broad. That's why, again, going back to the analogy of being the zebra, that neonatal jaundice may be from breastfeeding or the baby may need phototherapy. There are many, many causes for it. And one of the last few in that list will be biliary atresia, but it's one that you definitely do not want to miss. Now, some women are doing ultrasounds later in pregnancy. Would this pick up biliary atresia? Unfortunately, no, because basically the ultrasounds may see the liver itself, but that's basically it. This is an active area of research and doing studies in in pregnant women trying to correlate some amniocentesis findings and some inflammatory markers. However, nothing has been proven yet that we can say for sure that there's a prenatal diagnosis that we can do. And that's kind of because in utero, you're not actually eating, right? And then it's not until you're out in the world that your digestive system actually has to kick in. And so the waterfall effect of having the biliary atresia is when the digestive process starts that's what's causing all of the issues down the line. You're absolutely right. Yes. 
basically once you are born is when finally your liver kicks in and we use our bile to digest our food as part of our components to our bile salts. But yeah, when you start nutrition as a newborn, that's when the problems start to arise because there is no bile to be excreted. The bile is just accumulated in the liver and that's when jaundice then begins as well. So besides jaundice, what are the first signs or symptoms a parent or a pediatrician might notice? So the parent and pediatrician, jaundice, may, it's relative. Parents may not notice it right away, or they may be told at the beginning, like, oh, your baby is a little bit jaundiced, which is pretty common immediately in the newborn period. But acolic stools is a big buzzword in bilirubin. Parents that notice my baby had their first diaper was just whitish clay colored stool, not really normal then that is a big, big buzzword that should prompt further investigation for sure. And when you say clay-colored, we're talking the gray clay. Correct. We're talking gray clay or even whitish. In fact, the subjective judgment actually on the color of the actual stool is one of the biggest areas where I personally am interested in, in developing this pilot program to try to improve the early diagnosis of these babies. And it's a very simple solution I wish I could take credit for it, but it's not. It's been proven wide to be very, very official in other countries. Japan was the first country that instituted this with a pilot program in Taiwan where they just, to eliminate this subjectivity, they just gave parents after they were discharged after having a baby a stool card, basically with colors and indicative as like, this is normal stool. This is kind of concerning. If this is this color, call us right away. And to alert not just parents, but pediatricians as well, because it would it included, like, this is what you need to do when, if this were to happen. That's genius, because if you were to say clay color to somebody like my mother, who's an avid tennis player, they're going to think of the red clay. Correct. And that's why we see more and more, especially with babies that come to our clinic, late diagnosis. Like at the time, me as a liver transplant surgeon, I'm seeing them for an evaluation, potentially for a new liver, because it's too late. More often than not, I ask parents, like, what was the color of your baby's stool? And they all vary the same buzzword. But when I ask them, point to exactly what color was, everybody has a different idea of what that is. You mentioned about this early screening idea. Tell us a little bit about what you're trying to set up with an early screening and early referral protocol. Absolutely. I think it's a combination of things. So definitely the stool card is the primary idea of this project where we educate parents and pediatricians like this is the stool color and parents will call if they have this and this is going to be the protocol basically as early as possible as soon as that is detected then the baby can get just a simple blood test that you can measure the total bilirubin but also get also the direct bilirubin basically the fractionated bilirubin because the direct is the one that indicates a liver problem whereas indirect not so much what I say is a complex problem. I recently had a talk with the American Academy of Pediatricians, the Alabama chapter, because it used to be, I'm glad that they changed our policies as well. It used to be that babies had a newborn screening, then they had maybe a one-month screening or appointment with their pediatrician, and then there was no two-month required. It was usually, okay, skip until the three months when they were due again for their immunizations again. But then a lot of patients, a lot of parents were told in the newborn in the one month, oh, this color of stool, okay, that's normal. We can keep track of it at the end. And by the time they showed up for their three-month appointment, then the baby already has liver cirrhosis. So that's also a, a mindset change that is occurring right now. And I'm glad the AAP is 
extremely supportive of this. And they're also supporting of now also even a two-month well-child visit. And if you got the labs at the two-month child visit, would there be babies that you missed because they hadn't presented yet? Their atresia wasn't so severe? Or if you were doing these labs routinely at the two-month mark, would you really capture most of the infants? You really capture most of them because by that time, usually they will have some degree of liver dysfunction. What makes it a little bit more complex, and this is also part of the education of the whole pilot program that we want to start, is that there is a pediatric surgery procedure that you can do that is called the Kasai portoenterostomy. It's a very big fancy term, but Kasai was basically the Japanese surgeon that described it. But basically, in simple terms, you're connecting a loop of bowel to the liver since they don't have those bile ducts. So you're creating that connection to try to drain some of the bile from the liver and to relieve it from the burden. Once you do a Kasai, are you treated for life or is there a reason for the infants to continue to have follow-up? That's essential and I'm glad you asked because that is a big perception that a lot of parents think that, oh, once my baby already had the surgery, the end, it was a disease, but it's cured and I don't need any more follow-up. And sometimes we see even pediatricians that think, oh, they had the Kasai and that's okay. But in fact, they require, this is a lifelong disease and they require constant care. So even if a Kasai is defined as successful, if after three months after the procedure, then the bilirubin gets normal and that's fine. However, at the end of the day, these livers were not born normal. So even if the bilirubin itself normalized, long-term, these babies can still have sequela or consequences of their liver disease manifested in what we call portal hypertension, meaning that they develop collateral and they have varices in their esophagus, in their stomachs, so or they can be prone to having GI bleeds. They can have big spleens as well. And long, long term, this circulation that is abnormal, that is a lot of blood flow that's supposed to be from the gut through the liver into the heart, that is totally abnormal in these babies. Long-term can have effects inside the liver and manifested years long with even liver tumors. And it also has a side effect on the heart itself because it puts an extra burden on the heart. And sometimes there's something called hepatopulmonary syndrome or portopulmonary syndrome where kids, not babies, but usually when, when they're in their teenage years, after years of having this abnormal circulation, they end up needing oxygen as well. Got it. And so for someone who's trying to follow along, basically the liver, what's going on, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically almost like a plumbing problem. The blood that's supposed to be, the liver's saturated with blood vessels and the blood and everything that's supposed to be going through the liver is sort of getting backed up. And so it's creating problems up the line for things that are pushing against that liver and not letting everything go through. And then that affects things also down the line. So it's like you've got a little bit of a clog in the system, right? Correct. Whenever I talk to parents to explain this situation, I always uh, equate it like a plumbing problem or even like a filter in a sink that is clogged. And that is a problem. The, basically, the clogged analogy is basically the liver being cirrhotic. Cirrhotic just means scarred by any cause. In this case, biliary atresia is the cause. So that clogging, that's exactly like you said, across, it leads to the backing up of all those blood vessels elsewhere. Blood has to go somewhere else. Let's just touch on liver transplant. So you mentioned that sometimes the children might need a liver transplant down the line. Do you ever do a liver transplant just right off the bat? That's a very good question. And the answer is yes. 
the main thing is that whenever patients get at the two and a half, three month mark, at that point, the Kasai, that primary procedure to try to drain some of that bile may not be successful and in fact may push them into acute liver failure if they already are showing signs of cirrhosis at that point. So sometimes we do have babies that are late diagnoses or referred late to our transplant center that when they show up, the question is, can we do a Kasai? But sometimes they already have that portal hypertension, that big spleen, those varices, that ascites. And in those cases, then you shouldn't do the Kasai, then you will proceed as yours with a primary liver transplant. That will be their first operation. Does getting a liver transplant early prevent some of the sequela that you talked about before? It does prevent some of the sequela because the liver transplant is curative. However, in pediatric liver transplant, obviously, it's a highly technical, highly complex operation. Even in an adult, that when you boil it down, then you're going now with a baby, then the stakes are much, much higher and it's more complex because of the size. Got it. But the good news is, is livers are easier to come by. Technically, yes, it's easier to find because sometimes you can even split what we call an adult liver and give part of that to a uh, baby. But the donor pool in Alabama, sometimes people don't want to donate or sometimes people have other diseases that makes them inadequate donors for a pediatric donor specifically, especially in terms of our diabetes epidemic, our obesity epidemic, that makes it sometimes slightly harder. To find that healthy liver. Correct. This has been fascinating. In summary, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think the main thing that I would like to share just with parents, pediatricians, and anybody that sees these babies that have heard, oh, biliary atresia, or even just that they're a little bit yellow when they were newborns and or they just noticed that, is just talk with your pediatrician. I think there's many ways, more often than not, that it won't be this diagnosis. But if it is, then you definitely want to detect it early because there are definitely a lot more options. Even though we haven't determined the cause of the disease, we have a lot more treatment options. They just depend on early diagnosis. And I think as a pediatrician myself, I would say to patients out there or parents, if you're concerned, if you're not sure what you're looking at, take a photo of the stool. A photo is worth a thousand words and showing that photo to someone really makes it clear what it is you're looking at. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Well, Dr. Pozo, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. If you'd like more information or to refer patients to Children's of Alabama, visit childrensal.org. That concludes this episode of Children's of Alabama Pedscast. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels. And be sure to check out the entire podcast library for other topics that might be of interest to you. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Children's of Alabama Pedscast. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Cross.